0: sloppy UX research can put you on the wrong path. This is the danger with it. So no user research costs nothing and gets zero result. Sloppy user research costs money and is biased towards negative outcomes. Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Honest UX Talks. As always, I'm joined by Anfisa and today we're going to be tackling a very interesting topic that concerns us all. How do we sell user research to our clients or stakeholders? I know that uh, this is a very constant conversation throughout the industry that People in organizations, in different teams, stakeholders, people outside the UX team don't really see the value of UX research. And I think it's also an ongoing struggle convincing the clients to budget UX research to understand that they need to put more time into it. It traces back in history, if you want. I feel like ever since I joined the design guild, I've been listening to these conversations around struggles that everyone has uh, with advocating and getting buy-in for UX research. So today we're gonna try to share some stories and our personal tips around how to convince people in your team, in your company, or your clients to invest time and money in research. So this is the topic for today, but before we do that, very quickly, the traditional sync with Anfisa. How have you been, Anfisa, in the meantime? (laughs)
1: Hello guys and welcome back to the next episode. I was great actually. We were just quickly chatting (laughs) about the COVID that we probably all have it right now. So (laughs) I mean I was great apart or besides the fact that I'm probably also having a COVID right now, like who isn't, right? <laughs> but uh but everything else is, is just is just good as and normal as usual. I'm still enjoying my unemployment and I'm still waking up every day at like nine or sometimes ten. <laughs> and so this is this is great because it's winter and you don't really want to wake up earlier. I know you guys are jealous right now of me probably. <clears throat> But yes, I'm, I'm feeling myself like I'm retired at the moment, uh, just passively working on my side projects. Like I mentioned, finishing the website, planning the redesign for the, the course website. And also, by the way, uh, preparing the case study template that I want to publish also on my website, because um, since I was applying to some jobs in December... In my case study presentation went pretty, pretty good. There was some structure I was following and I just want to share that structure plus the template I was using. So maybe other people could also benefit from it. Um, so yeah, just wait for the news. Hopefully I'll publish the link uh, right under this episode in the show notes. Uh, how about you, Yona?
0: Well, I think I also have COVID. <laughs> I mean, I've had a lot of contact with people who are positive and all my friends have it. So I think it it would be like a miracle if I didn't. But at the same time, I did have COVID in the past. I also have the vaccine. So I think that mm, probably if if someone is protected, I should be that person. But right now I have a horrible headache. So and I understand that Omicron shows up with, with a headache in the early days. So we'll see. I just I can't wait for it to pass. I hope everybody gets a, a very easy form of disease. And then we're all better. We have all like the famous herd immunity faster. And I'm no doctor to talk about this topic so i'm gonna switch to ux design which is the topic that i'm actually good at in the ux design space what have I been doing? I've been always doing a lot of work like you are all probably familiar by now. Today I plan on writing an article about the uh, UX resources that you can find uh, especially on Instagram. An update of how the world of UX Instagram looks like and what corners of it are valuable in my perspective. So if you want to check out that article probably by the time this episode is out, the article is also available on Medium. So Uh, look me up on Medium and see uh, the places that I recommend following on Instagram. Okay, great. So uh, let's jump into the topic for today. I would start by kind of exploring and trying to unpack a little the fears or the most common objections, the, the space of reluctancy that we have to deal with when we're trying to ask for research time or research budget or both. From your experience and, and your perspective on FISA, why do you think clients and stakeholders are, are so reluctant to investing in UX research?
1: Definitely. Like I'm sure everybody have been going through the situation where either the client or the team that you're working with, um, if you're working in a product companies, have been sort of pushing back if you offered the research. And I feel like It really depends, of course, on the nature of the project. Just a little disclaimer here. There are cases when you don't necessarily need UX research, when sometimes UX research could harm your team. However, in 90% of the cases, you do need the research. And when you're trying to offer it, there are multiple reasons why you might hear the, the reasons for pushback. I think the most obvious and the most common we would usually hear are things like, oh, you know, we don't have time, especially if it's a startup, we need to move quick, let's just build it and see the reaction it will be faster than just doing the research and that's maybe something that's coming from the fact of unawareness or lack of education as to how much research do you really need there is maybe this conception that it it will take you i don't know months and months and we don't have that much time uh but i feel like it's just easy to i mean obviously as a a designers it's our job to inform that we can do it real quick (laughs) sort of sort of, it could save us, if we spend today two weeks, we could save, I don't know, three months in the future, redesigning the whole thing. So uh, it's a pros and cons, but I think it's, it's very important to always advocate for this and slowly slowly bit by bit educate our partners then the second one is of course the money thing when you say two three weeks the first thing probably most of the stakeholders would think is that oh you know what we don't have the budget for this we have just the money for i don't know development and the quick design by can you just do this we are we already know about what we're doing so maybe it's it's the fact that some partners are convinced that they know what they're doing. But, um, but also the fact that, oh, if it's extra cost, people are convinced that research is expensive. It sounds expensive. It sounds not like a basic need, <laughs> the screens, but it sounds like something extra. And many, many, many people think that it's going to cost them fortune, maybe as much as the, let's say, the development cost. So why why bother if I already quote-unquote know what we're doing, right? If I did my, I don't know, basic research, talked to my mom and she told me that she, she needs it. <laughs> but um, I think the other real um, challenge which we not always talk about is the lack of um, education or i guess lack of trust maybe even to the people and to the process because not everybody is aware about what does this thing mean you know um as a designer why are you even you know would be the, the one the person who's doing the research uh, why is it not going to be made by i don't know anthropologists and researchers and stuff like this so i think it just sounds like a lot of ambiguous things. You don't know what necessarily value it would bring and why would we trust you and your process if you're a designer? Again, that's my maybe misconception, but I have a feeling that there, there is this space of unknown that if uh, as a designer you never worked with the client or the team and they never really had, uh, had experienced the value of doing the research, never had the chance to get their hands dirty or gonna get a sense of it, then it, it might sound or might look like something big and unknown and I don't even know what's the point and thus it's, it kind of turns into this lack of trust into it. So that's my
0: intake. What about you Is there anything you would add here? You've covered a lot of things with your answer. I think some of the main themes that keep appearing again and again in the relationship with your, your stakeholders or your clients is that they feel that they don't really understand research design should be about just making screens why do we need the research anyhow because it's, it's just ui work that needs to go into into what the ux designer needs to do and so i think that one of the issue with how ux research is misunderstood is that people don't really understand what ux research is and i think it's our job to try to communicate and and show them if you want uh, why UX research is uh, is valuable and so on. I think some other things that might discourage people from being open to UX research is that sometimes in big companies, especially or in companies where there's a line of uh, reporting that's very strong and involved, some people fear that it's not worth doing research because we will have to do what the VP says anyway or what the CEO says. And so they feel like We just need to implement somebody else's vision because that's the only way to go. And maybe it's like a a company problem, if you want, not just team problem. Sometimes it feels like it's very, very sophisticated. Like you said, maybe they feel like this is something that anthropologists should be doing. Why should designers do that? Designers just make screens, just design. And it feels like something more sophisticated or, or that we don't need to get involved with. Probably two of the most common reluctancies I've heard or pushbacks I've heard around UX research are that one, we don't have time for that. We have to have the solution like yesterday. And the second one is that it will cost us a lot of money and we don't have the budget right now. And so it's it's just perceived lack of resources. And um, sometimes I feel that a big, big issue, both in companies and with clients, is that they think they know. They don't see the value in research because they feel that, oh, but we know what the users want. We understand what the problem is. There is no need to waste more time because we already know. And this is something that we probably, I I can assume bravely that every listener that has had some experience in the UX world ran into this situation where different stakeholders or clients say that, they know the problem. They understand the user already. there's no There's no need to to do discovery work or generative research and And just one last point around what I think makes people feel like rejecting research is that sometimes they're simply fearful of what they were going they're gonna find out. I feel that maybe they already uh, have some sort of idea around the solution. Maybe they fear that something might come up that they did wrong in the product at that point or or maybe just, just they, they they have something emotional around uh, the rejection reason so feeling fearful feeling like they already have too much on their plate they don't want extra work to be doing maybe they're afraid of being wrong maybe they're afraid of the idea of having to talk to people so there's also this emotional layer that could go into rejecting something and i think that um it's this is really interesting to explore from case to case so okay we i think we've went through a couple of um, reasons that uh, might make people reject research or fear it. Now let's see what are some of the arguments or solutions or things that we as designers can do in order to fight back on these uh, rejections and uh, and convince them that actually research is uh, valuable and we need to do it. Anfisa, I know that you've been waiting to say something. Now's the moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> no, I think I got excited when you were saying... That you know, clients already know what they're trying to do. They did their quote unquote research, and when I'm hearing it, I'm always getting triggered. You know, immediately ask all those challenging questions, and I'm getting excited because. Um, at, at some point, I was working also with these clients who didn't have any UX maturity, but that was okay because I think it was 2015-ish. And they they came to Ukraine. And they this is the clients from Kuwait, from Arab Gulf uh, region. So they came to Ukraine. They, they rented a hotel conference room. We started working. We started workshopping. And they were so convinced they know, know, they know what they're doing. They were so sure that the features they're suggesting is exactly what the market needs. Even though I was designing for their market, which I didn't know, um, they were so convinced that they know market so well, <clears throat> they worked for years. Some one of the guy was something from Microsoft, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I know it all. I've worked in this industry for like I don't know 20 years." And I'm sitting there being junior to middle designer who doesn't have all this confidence to ask the challenging questions. But my mind is exploding inside because I'm having all those "why's." Like you're saying, we need this, but why? 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 And at some point, you know, I was sitting there in a the room hearing all their perspectives. I just, I just burst. I couldn't hold it in me anymore and i started asking so what makes you think it's worth the thing so what data you have so why do you think it's what we need so what evidence you have collected to to make sure that that's the feature we need to develop and i started like overwhelming them with all my questions that i was accumulating for two hours in the in the, in the workshop as soon as i started asking all those questions i for the first time have seen this reaction I haven't been expecting because before that I was usually this designer who was taking orders and would always just uh, do whatever the client suggests to do and then because I couldn't hold it in me anymore and the client was so confident I needed to push back and I was not afraid to ask all those questions. And as soon as I started asking all those questions, I could see this magic reaction of client being confused, client being not sure what to answer, client not saying that we don't have any answers yet, but we're sure about it. And as you start asking more and more and more questions, you can see how their confidence is sort of disappearing. And for for me, that was like this magic switch moment when I realized that, Well, there is this magic of asking questions and if you're challenging them with honestly asking the right questions, because if you just ask why and they say something and you're like, okay, that doesn't work, but you do have to sort of concentrate on that moment, on their um, statements and reframe it and definitely ask for more evidence. And that's what I did and I think from that moment on there was this big reveal when I I think that became my strong side and my confidence that you have to always push back. Even if you are a freelancer, you're just supposed to make all those screens. When I realized that I could challenge them, later on, they actually said to me, thank you, we were not thinking about those other perspectives. And even though I was just this person with the screens in my head, they realized I could be a strong partner as well. (laughs) And so uh, that was like an aha moment for me. Um, And then honestly, everywhere I was working, I was always applying those questions, those challenging questions. I think we all now know about this in theory, right, asking at least all those five whys. There are other methods which are like five whys plus ash, which is basically what, why, uh, when, who, and stuff like that, plus how, so you have all the methods right now, but uh, it doesn't really matter what method you apply. What matters is what questions you're asking and which moment and how exactly is challenging your partners. That's the first thing. The second thing I've learned a bit later my in my freelancing career, in the later stages, I realized that it's also about sort of leveraging the cost of not doing the research. To put it simply, I've learned that it's important to aggregate and calculating the cost of not doing the research. Especially if you're working for a client or or a company for some time already and you're seeing that they're often doing the damage control uh, for whatever they're doing, if they're doing some processes and they keep having similar mistakes it's when you can actually start making up the case and calculate how much money they're spending for the damage control or uh, for example if your team is putting something out there they often not getting the traction they were looking for uh, if you see that people are not i don't know don't use the feature or if it's not performing well and stuff like that what helps me is to actually take some time and literally calculate the time we have spent after they have published the feature or whatever and then realizing that these could have been solved in just two weeks research. And you know slowly, slowly, I guess, giving them the chance to fail, but also giving them the pill to solve it, to work with this kind of helped me a little bit, but that was in in the companies. Let's say if the company was not UX mature, that was my way to sort of bring the research into the picture, leverage it a little bit more, Explain it that, that we can do it the other way. Let's do a quick design sprint just one week. Let's see how it goes. We, we, we don't have much to lose. And so slowly, 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 with actually very small incremental steps. I would start integrating or suggesting to do the research, especially in moments when everybody feels down if something didn't work well. And of course, leveraging the numbers because businesses, especially if you're working with the business stakeholders, PMs, and, and other people who need to have numbers in the reports, this is when I will try to make a case to explain that, you know what, if we save time for, for the sales team or for the support team or for the other team, we could save this money and, and, and this is how much money you need for the research. So let's just try it, you know. And also I've heard, I think, from Jared's pool, he would always say that you can ask, the. let's say if you're working with the PM who's doing this pushback, you can say, let's bet it. (laughs) Are you sure that that's what we need to to publish or to to develop? How much are you sure? What's your confidence level? Are you ready to bet your monthly salary? And then you might see this sort of hesitance in their head that maybe it's not 100% sure. Maybe I'm not ready to bet the whole salary on it. And so... um, Yes, this is, um, there are different tactics, but one thing we also need to be aware of is that not every company is ready for this change, for this transformation. Not every company feels like they have mental space to look into something new and different in their organization. If everything is moving, don't touch it because <laughs> you can break it. And especially if you're very much in the bottom, let's say if there is this top-down, strong culture where the top management sends you the tasks, and you're in a very, very much bottom of the list and always just trying to suggest different things but you see that it just never gets to the management then it might be a very hard challenge and not always you will be the one who will be able to change this. You can still do a lot of steps like, I don't know, talk to your manager and get the support from the top management but that's already a big challenge. You need to make a case, you need to make their time, you need to constantly push it, push it, push it and maybe in one year the first signs of change will start to appear but you have to need a lot of patience and trust and love after this company to to do all the projects so I, I actually often see people leave if they see there is no chance or not many pr- like perspectives to change things rapidly i guess yeah i've been talking about different things but I, if i try to summarize it for me the questions were the, the this aha moment when i would challenge the partners as well as trying to make a case for what it costs to the company for not doing the research how much money they're losing and how much money they could actually have spent. To leverage those those costs. That's about me. How
0: about your principles, or I guess tricks that you would you would use in your practice? You've covered a lot of things, so it's pretty hard for me to come up with something new. But I will try to, to add to that. So uh, I feel that another piece of the puzzle here would be where you are in the process. So I I think that different stages in the design process require different research efforts, and some stages uh, are riskier than others so especially if you're going in a new field that you don't understand maybe the client doesn't understand very well it hasn't been explored it's not like an established industry like like let's say i don't know uh, players like airbnb or uber who have kind of set the standard set the mental models you can't stray very far away from so if you want to build a car sharing app it can't be something completely different from from what's already out there because people have formed mental models or if you want to design a search bar, it can't be very far off from the Google. But if you're going into a completely new industry that you don't understand, that the client doesn't understand, that there aren't many products and mental models that you can refer to. So it's it's a riskier place. There are a lot of unknowns. So if you're in that kind of space, then obviously research is mandatory. You just can't skip it. You can't risk it. it. You really risk solving a problem that isn't there, a problem that doesn't exist or a problem that's actually the wrong problem that you should be solving. So I would also add this dimension unpacking what I just said. I think we have actually three dimensions. So one is where you are in the design process. The second one is how much knowledge is there in the unconscious collective, in, in the team, in the world, everywhere? How much knowledge is it about the problem you're trying to solve? And the third one is risk. How how risk adverse or uh, prone to taking risks are you? And uh, how much would you own the fact that you might end up with a solution that no one needs to a problem that no one has, or to a problem that's irrelevant, or the solution doesn't actually fix the problem. So if you are willing to accept that, then by all means, don't do research. But if you're not, then most clients and most stakeholders will not be comfortable with that idea, then you will probably need to, to invest time in research. So that's another thing, another piece of the puzzle. Plus, even when you're super confident. So I loved your story about the, the client from Kuwait that they came in and they thought they had all the answers. But when you started actually challenging them, th- there wasn't much under their their confidence. So I feel that this is this is another thing that um, that's very important. And it also worked in my experience, trying to understand where their confidence stems from and whether it's it's reliable because many times people just feel like they know or they want to just look smart they want to look informed they want to look like they know what they're doing it's their business it's their industry it's their domain of knowledge so they don't want to appear uninformed so maybe they also have i don't know the investor that they need to to appear confident in front of so i think there are many levels of why people might jump in to say that they know but the thing is that when you start actually asking questions and provoking and going into a tangible conversation, you might discover that there's not much data to back that up. There weren't any research efforts beforehand, no analytics, no secondary research, no competitive analysis, no nothing. And and it's just probably sometimes informed gut feelings, but it's still a gut feeling. So again, I would go back to how much risk are you willing to take? And how brave is the solution that you're trying to build? How far away from from regular mental models are you trying to to go with the challenge that you're doing? And another thing that I would look at is some research efforts are bigger than others, and I would like always bring into consideration. For example, you're in the later stage of a design of the design process, and you've built a solution, you've you created a prototype, and now you can decide to build it, and this is. Some other very interesting form of rejection that I've heard many times Oh, but we'll find out once we launch it. I really don't understand why people would want to find something out after they built it, when they can find out before they build something and they invest all the time, the resources, the money. So I think it's way more expensive to build something and then find out if it's the right thing, as opposed to finding out before you actually build it. And that can be after you've prototyped it. So it was designed. Okay, you've designed it, but now let's spend some time Testing it with users. I've heard this many times. We'll find out once it's live. Okay. (laughs) Not ideal from my perspective, but but yeah. So getting back to what I was trying to say, if you're in the later stage of the process, you have a prototype, testing it with 10, 20 people will not be very expensive, will not be extremely time-consuming. And like Nielsen Norman studies show, five, six people will uncover probably 80% of most usability issues. So it's really, really... A small effort with huge impact, potentially. So I would also look at that. How much effort do I need to put into finding things out? And if there's not that big of an effort, then by all means, why would you skip it? (laughs) So that's also something that I would argue in these conversations. So yeah, I would say you've already shared a personal story. Uh, Do you have any other stories that come to your mind or any other situation where, where research was Uh, disconsidered and then it turned out that it was a bad thing to do so or do you have any other personal stories that you like to share with us? So I think I can follow
1: up or finish the story with the Croatian client. But I wouldn't say it's like it has the happy ending, but uh, but the lesson for sure <laughs> thing is, like I mentioned, I felt in a moment very, very confident and feeling like, yeah, I can ask all those questions. I'm this good specialist. I know what I'm doing. But, but that's just to say that I was not as confident yet. I was just not as educated and prepared for the for that conversation. So after pushing back, they agreed to do some research, but we were already there in Kiev, in the hotel conference room. So they said, okay, you don't believe us? Let's do the research. And I think it was something about the solution for the parking slots and some discounts for whatever, I don't remember, in the shopping malls. They said, "Like, okay, you want to do the research? Okay, let's do this. Let's go to the nearest shopping mall and, and ask our questions and validate what we assume will work. My problem was that I was still not ready to ask the right questions to the users because it was all impromptu and i didn't have the confidence in saying wait we need to get ready we need to prepare we need to think how are we trying to validate it screen for the right users and stuff like that i said like oh you're ready for doing this let's do this so Right after the, let's say it was, we finished working in the beginning of the day, like in the, around the lunchtime for the lunchtime, we went to the shopping mall right now. I'm looking back and I'm kind of face palming myself, but we were just asking the target potential users, like, do you need it? <laughs> yeah. I'm just sharing the story for the closure, but I feel like we were doing the wrong thing by asking this question, because if you just come to the users and say, Hey, will you like to get this extra discount for X, Y, Z effort? Most of them said like, yeah, sounds great. I would love it. Many people were super excited about this feature. Now, my problem is that it was not right to ask for the validation, would you want it? Uh, And I still wasn't very confident in saying, you know what, we need to prepare, we need to think about the research strategy, what's the right way to ask the questions, how do we not lead the users to to the answers, how do we get the truth answers and stuff like that. So just to complete the story, basically, uh, we did the field research sort of. But um, that was not right. And I think we just misinformed ourselves because the, the clients uh, were led to believe that that's a great idea, it will work. But when we launched it, it wasn't. <laughs> so, yeah, you still have to do the research. It's not that we just ask our five users uh, just uh, simple questions and we get our validation. You still have to do some effort. You do have to get ready. But for, of course, for the clients, you just need to explain a
0: bit more what it takes. Uh, it's not just a matter of asking one question. So, <laughs> any stories you would like to share with us? Actually, your story reminded me of a tweet by Jared Spool that I really liked and I actually shared at the time because I felt was extremely powerful. So speaking to your story, he was writing that sloppy user research is not better than no user research. So I think this is a very common misunderstanding. People feel, oh, let's just do some research. Let's do something quickly. And then we move on we ticked off the UX process list, uh, the research part, we did it, and then we can move on and we have these findings. And your story powerfully goes to show that actually doing improper UX research or doing sloppy UX research can put you on the wrong path. This is the danger with it. So no user research, like Jared was arguing, costs nothing and gets zero result. Sloppy user research costs money and is biased towards negative outcomes. And you can't even tell. So he's, he's, thesis was that with zero research, you're creating UX steps at a much slower rate. So I feel that definitely doing improper UX research or just uh, UX research to demonstrate (laughs) that you're doing it is potentially very dangerous because it can put you on wrong directions, wrong paths. So getting back to our personal experience and sharing personal stories, I have a very interesting story. Actually, I was working uh, within my team. We were pretty close. It was Not necessarily designing by committee, but uh, different roles were heavily involved in design decisions because it was a product that they built from scratch, the developers, and they were very attached to it. And I wanted to welcome their expertise and their deep understanding of, uh, of the product in. And so we were kind of having constant conversation around the best possible solution. And something we all agreed on at a particular moment in time was that the product albeit a very technical product, needs to be user-friendly. It needs to be simple, clear, obvious, a lot of white space, a clean, airy feel, make it look modern, make it look seamless, and so on. So we all agreed on that. The product managers, the developers, the even the leadership, myself, As a designer, we kind of had like this certainty that this is how a product should look and be like, right? And then we actually started doing generative uh, user research and having interviews with our users. And it turns out that users were pretty frustrated by white space. And it may come as a shock to many of our listeners. But the thing is that our users were technical people. It was a technical product used by technical people. Technical people are most of the times used to products that have high information density. They juggle with a lot of uh, data at the same time. They, they work in complicated technical programs. So for them, it was pretty frustrating to have this very easy, uh, user-friendly, white-spacey user journey because it didn't appeal to their mental models. It didn't appeal to the muscle memory that they had when using a product. And the, the insight that came out again and again was that you're just wasting space and I just want to see more information in one place. For me, it's important to see as much information as possible. And it was a shock even for our technical people. But but this is how you can, you can definitely assume that you understand your users or assume that you're making a very low risk decision because everybody might think and might be right most of the times that Products that are user friendly are better, but in this case, our persona was very particular, and we forgot to to focus on who we're building this product for. And it was a very interesting lesson on even if you have team alignment, you can all be wrong. <laughs> so this is uh, this is my story for today, and I think it's time for us to move into the top three findings or top three ideas. And I'm gonna invite you and to share your uh, insights for today.
1: Of course, um, great story by the way. <laughs> this is an interesting topic because we can speak about so many aspects of it, starting from the fears to the tactics to now stories of, you know, doing the the research right but also wrong. Maybe we can accumulate more stories about doing research wrong. I can definitely share more. <laughs> but okay, let's let's get to the actual takeaways for today. We need to accept the fact that um, many companies, especially in the beginning of their um, product journeys, might be reluctant, might have fears. We need to just accept the fact, okay, there are fears. There are, uh, I guess, assumptions and preconceptions about what research is. So it's our job to always educate our partners. And if you see that, okay, it's a startup, it's early stage, no budget, no time. It's all right. Just take step by step and help your partners to and I get a hand of it and experience it with the small bits. Maybe it could be one day workshop, maybe even lightning decision jam when it's just two hours activity. Maybe there is this concept of lunch and, and UX. Um, I've heard about it from the energy conference where just like if you're working with the company every week or every day, or whatever, you might arrange those lunch and UX when people are still eating, but you are sharing the fun case studies, showed how, how research helped to improve the business outcomes and stuff like that. So I guess slowly, 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 bit by bit, educating your partners and building that Mindset that UX and um, research and in general UX practice could improve and contribute to the business outcomes. My takeaway is that it's our job to inform and help our partners to understand it better. The second takeaway here, don't be afraid to push back, ask for more validation, to not be afraid to challenge the clients, even if you're a junior or you feel like you don't have the power, you don't have the credit to do that. But critical thinking in UX design is, is a very valuable skill and the earlier you get to practice it, the, the earlier you get to understand that you could be empowered in the project, the faster you'll become this. More of a partner rather than order takers. And uh, the other takeaway, I would say, like again, based on our later conversation when we shared our stories, if you're seeing that the client is finally okay, say let's try it. Don't just rush into it unprepared, and think that you can just quickly figure it out by asking one or two questions around. You do need to do this homework. You do need to get prepared. Sometimes no research, like Joanna mentioned, which is better than than sloppy research so even though you might convince your clients don't rush to use this momentum and just do it right away because you might contribute to this ux debt. and it's better to do your homework especially if you're let's say not very experienced designer and you're feeling this Okay, I'm empowered. Now I have this opportunity to do the research. Let's use the momentum. Let's catch the wave. Not always. It's a good idea. You probably still need to say, okay, great. Let me do my work. Let me do my homework. Uh, let's move on to whatever we're doing right here. I'll get back to you tomorrow, next week, and uh, suggest some steps for us to quickly and not painfully do this. Do this, hopefully, right. And so, yeah, that would be my third takeaway, that don't rush into it unprepared, because that could actually make it worse. That would be my third takeaway. What about yours?
0: I would say my first takeaway for today is that like with every relationship or conversation that you have with people in your life, I would look at the reasons behind the obvious reasons that are the the reasons that they mention when they reject research. So every time somebody says no to research, no, because we don't have the time, or when they say, oh, no, but we already know, what the fear behind that might be so in the first case oh no we don't have the time maybe their fear is that they will disappoint their bosses or they will disappoint i don't know investors that are waiting for the product to be shipped maybe they have a fear that they won't live up to the the deadlines and stuff like that or maybe they will appear like they don't know what they're doing or or anything emotional or in the second case when they say oh but we already know maybe they are afraid that they will be exposed as being wrong or not understanding the market that they're building products on on stuff like that so i think that always i would look deeper like we do as designers especially in the research space i would look deeper at what drives them into re- rejecting something what's what's the emotional reason behind that, if you can see it, obviously. Many times it, it can be just an uninformed assumption or a projection of what you would feel in that situation. But I would look at that as well, if there's a deeper reason if I and, and if I'm able to speak to that. The second takeaway for today would be the realm of risk. So I would always argue or counter-argue rejecting research with asking them if they're willing to take the risk. Once you put that decision in their arms and you make them own it, and you make it like it, it's a milestone it's it's like a snapshot at this moment in time you are owning the risk of this product to fail and if if you own it if, if you frame it as a risk then people most of the times are pretty risk adverse and it, it forces them to think if they're like you said earlier, if they're if they're confident enough, if they like like the Jared's pool uh, tweet or idea that you mentioned where if they're willing to bet. So would, would they bet their salary? Right. So this is another thing. Uh, are you willing to take that risk? You you're the one taking that risk. Will you own it? And and this, I think, makes people kind of back off a little and actually do the thinking. Uh, am I actually willing to to take this risk in the name of the entire team? The last point is that even when you think you know everything, even when you know and you're super confident that you know, and you might actually know some things, you still don't know what you don't know. So even when you think you understand the problem completely, there are many things that you don't know you don't understand. And so there's always a reason for UX research because there will always be things that you've missed or that you haven't yet even thought about. So it might be that you really understand, let's say in my example, in my personal story example, you understand that the people are very technical and they want to see a lot of information in the dashboard. Okay, that's great. You know that. But you don't know other things about them like What's the light in the office uh, when they work? How many times they spend in front on a computer and how that might impact uh, the strain that they have on their um, energy levels or headaches or stuff like that. So there's still a lot of things that you haven't explored. And even if you know like 10 things, there are probably another 10 th- things that you haven't thought about and that you haven't discovered yet. So my last point is that research is always valuable because many times you still don't know what you don't know. So this is my last takeaway for today. And with that, I'm going to invite you, Anfisa, to tell the story of how people can support us and follow us and uh, show some appreciation and love if if these episodes are at least uh, somewhat valuable. So yeah, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Sure. Uh, First of all, great points. Um, I love that you even dig deeper and said, like think about the motivation. This is great. This is really wonderful. Uh, Now, yes. So if if you guys find it at least a bit valuable, we would really appreciate your support. Any signs of love. um, There are many ways how you can show it. You can either just send us a DM on our Instagram. You can find us as Honest UX Talks or just um, directly message me or Ioana. And again, you can find all the links right in the show notes. Uh, You can also just rate us on the Spotify app or whatever app you're using for podcast listening. We honestly always, always appreciate it. And also if there is any feedback, suggestions or improvements that we need to consider, there is still a form in the show notes. to feel free to click that anonymous link and submit your feedback. We definitely want to make it as useful as possible for you. So your input is um, very valuable. With that being said, thank you so much for joining today again, and uh, we are really excited to see you on the next episodes. Bye-bye.